Uh, so our next speaker is Miss Catherine McCluskey. She's an attorney with McCluskey Law Offices in Chester County, Pennsylvania, a, a general practice firm with a focus on healthcare and elder law. She's a graduate of Widener University School of uh, Law and is admitted to both the New York, New Jersey and Pennsylvania bars. Uh, she received her master's of public health from Drexel University as well as her physician assistant training from Hahnemann University. Uh, Ms. McCluskey retains her physician assistant certification and continues as an adjunct faculty member at Drexel's PA program after her 10 years of teaching there as an associate professor. So please welcome Ms. McCluskey. Good morning. Just testing to make sure that was on. Thank you very much for coming out so early today. Um, but I think it's really important uh, to have an understanding about what's going on. So basically my talk today will to, uh, is to give you a basic overview about healthcare reform and some of the basic things that you need to know. Basically, um, the objectives of the talk today is to give you a foundational understanding about the driving forces behind healthcare reform. Also, to identify major provisions of healthcare reform and their impact not only on our patients' health, but also on the way that we care for our patients. And finally, I will wrap up by describing some opportunities um, for you as physician assistants, not only to stay um, aware of what's going on in healthcare, but also to get involved. I have to give you my disclaimer. That's one of the things they always taught us in law school. Um, you have to have, uh, I just want you to know that the information that you're getting here today is not legal advice. It's just general, inf general informational purposes only. And that if you have specific questions regarding the impact of healthcare reform on your general practice, please contact an attorney in your state. Basically, there's three forces that are at work here driving healthcare reform cost, quality, and access issues. And I know that you, you are all aware about how much it costs um, for our patients to be able to come into the um, dermatology office or their general practice office. And then the quality is also an issue today. And then finally, uh, the uh, access, you know, having people being able to get in and actually pay for it. So the first thing I'll talk about is cost. Uh, these figures are from 2008, and so I can assure you that these numbers have grown. We spend more than $2 trillion on health care costs in the United States every year. This is an exorbitant amount of uh, money that we spend on health care. To put it in perspective, it grows about 4% 4, 4 each year. So every year it grows and grows and gets worse and worse. We never have any kind of a saving. Another way of looking at it is that we spend almost $8,000 per individual in the United States just for health care. Now, when we compare it to the other countries that we will shortly, you'll see that we pay a lot of money, more than double than most countries who are equally situated uh, as we are. And finally, our healthcare expenditures takes up 17%, more than 17% of our gross domestic product, and that's the product that they use to measure, to sort of try to get apples and oranges from how much we actually spend overall as a country. So there are cost issues, so you can see that it's a significant problem. The next issue is quality issues. As you all remember from the 1999 report from the Institutes of Medicine to Aris Human, came out with this report and said that we kill, as, primary, uh, as practitioners, healthcare practitioners, between 46,000 and 98,000 patients every year 
just by preventable medical errors. So this was a report that actually sent a shockwave, not only through the medical profession, but also the government, to say, what are we paying for? We're actually harming patients, and this is not good. So in light of that report, the National Quality Forum came up with 10 what's what we know as never events, but are officially termed as serious reportable errors. And they came up with 28 different things that they feel should never happen when a patient comes into a hospital. For instance, when a patient comes into a hospital, they should never get operated on if they're not supposed to, or have a procedure done on an arm when they're supposed to have it done on a leg. Now these never events are rare, and everyone knows that they're rare. It doesn't really happen, but when it does, and it does happen, it is a devastating impact, not only on the patient, but on the cost of trying to get that patient back to where they can be, if, if that's possible at all. So the uh, National Quality Forum came up with the never events, and they basically have to do with surgical, device placement, care management, uh, patient protection. You know, patients, you know, if, if they're apt to have, you know, um, commit suicide, they should have pro appropriate protections on board. Um, so these were the never events. So then the government, the thing with the never events is that they're only required to be reported that they occurred. And the Joint Commission also agrees that if these uh, serious reportable events, they also call some of them sentinel events, were to occur, then they need to be reported. And not only are they reported to the government and to the Joint Commission, they also have to be followed up with a uh, root cause analysis as well as information about how, to, how the system was going to fix it. So the interesting thing about the National Quality Forum when they picked up these never events was that they weren't actually going after individuals to say, no, 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 you did a wrong thing. They were looking at the system point of view. They wanted to know what happened in the system that made this event occur. The government got on board and they decided that they came up with a separate list called Hospital Acquired Conditions. Now some of the issues on the Hospital Acquired Conditions are listed as never events. But what the government said was that they have their own list. And if any of these things were to occur while the patient was in the hospital, hence hospital-acquired condition, that the government would not pay for the care associated with that new issue. They had a whole list of things. This was primarily adopted by Medicare, and it was recently adopted by, by Medicaid. Medicaid just put up a proposed rule that wants to adopt the same thing. They don't want to pay for a problem that occurred while the patient was in the hospital that the patient did not present with. Now, we all know that that's a problem. There's some issues with this because, you know, they say that if a patient comes in and they can present, the POA means present on a mission. They could come in with a decubitus ulcer of a stage one, and if that advanced it during the hospital mission to a stage five, any care associated with that increased um, problem with the decubitus would not be paid for. And I know you can come up with a lot of different arguments why that shouldn't happen, why that should be paid for, and you're absolutely right, which is why we need to keep talking about it and keep these people informed about actually what's going on in medicine. However, some of these things, you have to agree, shouldn't actually happen, and they shouldn't, the government should not be responsible for payment. If somebody comes in and gets the wrong blood, you know, you're supposed to type it, you're supposed to screen it, you're supposed to check it and check it and check it, and you hang it up, you're supposed to check it again, right? People, they still make mistakes. They still give wrong blood to the wrong patient. So that's a problem. So it sort of is a way of acting as a stick to say this stuff can't happen and you have to pay attention to it. 
So these are the quality issues that keep driving healthcare reform because if you pay so much for it, we should be getting better quality. And then finally, the last driving force is access issues. Access issues involve not only people who are uninsured, as you know that that's a problem. If people have no insurance, they never come in when they're supposed to. Who would? Who can possibly afford that much money to come in and see your doctor even on a regular visit? And then the treatment and prescriptions, Obviously, most people, if they can't afford insurance and they're in a position that they can't really afford to buy insurance, they're going to wait and wait and wait. They're going to wait until they have a heart attack. They're going to wait until they have a stroke. They're going to wait until that little, little lesion turns into a, a malignancy. And that's a real problem. Yoked to that, although we really don't talk so much about it, are people who are underinsured, people who have insurance, but it's not good insurance. They have huge deductibles, and they can't pay. So again, they will also wait. This is a problem. We pay a lot of money for health care. We don't get that good of quality. And then the access, we can't get enough people to get covered so that they can come into us. All of this stuff helps when, you know, to try to control costs. You can't have people walking around underinsured and uninsured and expect them to come into a doctor appropriately. And when they do, when they hit the ER, it's going to cost a whole heck of a lot less. And finally, access issues come up in the form of lack of primary care practitioners as well as specialists who are unwilling or unable to accept the payments that are given for like Medicaid or Medicare or they don't take your insurance. And so this is a problem. So we have this huge ball that keeps rolling. People keep getting sicker. Healthcare costs keep going up and up and up. So let me talk about cost a little bit more. So a lot of people, and I was just at a, a party last week, and there's a lot of people who are, you know, in my age group, and they were stating, we have the best health care in the world. We have, you know, we have the best technology, we have the best specialist. And, you know, if you only look at those two act issues, you know, act, um, specialist and also technology, we are. We are the best. But overall, we're actually not. If you look here on this, this um, chart, the United States at this time was spending $7,200 per person on health care. But when you look at the other countries, Canada, Netherlands, Germany, they spend almost half. Okay, so we're spending double, they spend half. Another way of looking at it is to compare it to the G GDP, the gross domestic product. We spend at this time with 16%, and all these other countries spend, again, half. So why is it that we're spending double the amount of health care? Well, the argument goes, I think I have one more slide. One more slide about cost. Less than 10 years ago, an employer and employee would pay for health care, for health insurance, for a family of four. Based on that number, it was almost a little over $9,000. Less than 10 years later, they're spending almost $20,000. Okay, things aren't really getting better. They are, in fact, getting much, much worse. So what is quality care? We spend a lot for it, so how do you define it? Well, the most common uh, definition of quality health care is to get the right care at the right time for the right person in a way that will give you the best outcome. That's basically how it's accepted that we have what quality care is uh, defined as. So then they took a look at all the countries that we were just talking about, and we said, okay, fine, quality care. We must have best quality because we spend the most, but it's not. In matter of fact, and you can check this with 
the, the majority of well-balanced research that the United States, when compared to its um, uh, industrial uh, equals, comes in dead last every year. Dead last. We have the worst. Okay, there are small segments such as effective health care and patient-centered care. This is when the patient gets to the doctor. When the patient gets to the doctor, more likely than not that they'll get the right care. And they can also get care that fits in with what they want to do. But they're the only two things we do really do well on. If you look at the, the, the quality care and access, cost-related problems are huge. In this scale, having high numbers like a seven is bad. Having ones are good. So, so the United States hits seven when it comes to other um, countries. Um, also, timeliness of care. Of course, people can't get to their, their doctors. And then long, healthy, productive lives. So you say, okay, well, this all has to do with economies. You know, we have a better economy, blah, blah, blah. Well, here's something else that they looked at. They looked at long, healthy, productive lives. That is, by the age of 60, one of the things they looked at was by the age of 60, how healthy were you uh, when compared to having medical issues that were able to be addressed? So people who had diabetes, did they have amputations? Do they have uh, skin issues? Did they have renal issues or eye issues? Well, they looked at it and they said, you know what? U.S. is again last, okay? Because when it came to having healthy people at the age of 60, we didn't do very well. And interesting, because of our Medicare system, if you looked at those people who made it to 65, they actually, they wound up getting equal treatments. Then all these numbers become a little bit equal because then now people have more insurance. The other thing that they looked at for long, healthy, productive lives is infant mortality. Now, when you look at infant mortality in the United States and compare it international, and not only our industrial equals, but overall, like all the information that they have about, available, were last. Again, we're usually in the bottom three, maybe bottom four. How can that possibly be? We spend so much money, double, than any other country, and we have the worst. We have the worst quality care when you compare it to England and Canada and New England and Australia. So there's really, really a serious problem here. So this is another driving force for healthcare. And then finally, again, access. This is from 2009. We have 50 million people who are uninsured. Now, this isn't underinsured. This is uninsured. Now, this number 50 includes eight, or more than 8 million children. We have CHIP. But there's 8 million children who are not insured for various reasons. A lot of times, parents don't understand the system. They can't get their kids registered. So this is a real problem, in addition to the 41 million people who are uninsured. The interesting thing about this number is that when people look at the uninsured numbers, they always have something around 40 million so that aren't. But these numbers usually only reflect a snapshot in time. Okay, so at one point during the year, you have 40 million people who have no insurance. However, if you look at the prevalence over the course of time, over the course of a year, that number jumps up to almost 60. So you could say, I was unemployed in January, but in September I got insurance. They may have, ta this, they may have taken this snapshot in November. So I would have been out of this number. So you can see that there's a lot of people floating around that don't have insurance. Hence, health care reform. 
there are, this talk, because of the time limits, obviously I can't possibly go over, you know, uh, the Patient Protection Act. I mean, it's huge. So what I do is I basically picked out some of the statutes, some of the things within those statutes, and I'll present those because I think that they're either most interesting or most likely in the news today. Okay, so you have the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, and that was signed into law last year. Everybody knows that. It was this huge, I keep thinking of it as a fish net. It's a huge net being cast out, trying to look at all aspects of this problem, cost, quality, and access. And they're trying to figure out what is going to work. They make this law and they pass it. It was a little funny because hot on the heels, this was passed in March, I believe it was either uh, late March or early April that the second bill uh, was adopted, the Healthcare Education Reconciliation Act. That act was an act that was passed that basically amended some things in PACA and it also uh, clarified some things. And that was really important. So you have these two bills that you, know, you hear the different names for, but together, when people refer to them together, they're called the Affordable Care Act. And so you'll hear all these lingos. Okay, so the Affordable Care Act um, was the main health care reform, but I also thought it was important to pick out HIPAA. We all know HIPAA, but the major reason why I'm bringing it up today is because HIPAA was a law that started the security and privacy uh, laws regarding uh, personal health information. And then uh, it was uh, the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act uh, was recently also enacted. That was the, the bill that injected billions of dollars into our economy trying to, am I stroking? Okay, just checking. Um, all of a sudden the lights go dim. I thought this was it. Okay, so uh, you have this American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, and that's when the government poured billions of dollars into our economy trying to sort of jumpstart it. The interesting thing about this for us today is that it also had the High Tech Act, the Health Information Technology for Economic and Clinical Act. And so you can see why we always have these shortcut names, High Tech. The interesting thing about High Tech was that that uh, started to address e-privacy, electronic privacy and security of personal health information. So I thought that these two additional statutes were also important to just sort of touch base on. So of course everyone wants to know how much is it going to cost? Well, it depends. It depends on who you look at. And remember from your statistics course, you got to look at the numbers. You can spin numbers a lot of different ways. So what you try to do is try to get the best numbers, the most objective numbers, or the most objective numbers so far that come up is from the Congressional Budgeting Office. They're charged with looking at the statutes, all statutes, and looking at every single angle about what it's going to cost and if there's any kind of savings and, you know, they just do all this analysis. They agree that enacting health care reform will have us uh, run into a savings. They believe that based on all their projections and what's going on with the health care reform, that if we carry out some form of health care reform, that we can save $124 billion over a 10-year period, period of time. That's also important because that means that we won't be growing. Our, the the health care costs, remember I told you that it would grow at 4%, a little bit more than 4% each year? That's what we're trying to stop. We're trying to stop the growth. And this is actually going to run into a savings. Uh, the, the best thing for us as practitioners, or actually for you guys as practitioners, is that they will cover um, 32 million people. 
Now, over 10, I think this number is from 2000, uh, projected at 2016, that they think there's going to be more than 50 million people uninsured in that snapshot of time. And of those people who would be uninsured, if we don't enact health care reform, there will actually be 32 million who will be covered, which is great. That's great. And that will actually still leave 23 million uninsured. And there's lots of reasons why people aren't insured under our system. You know, we have people who fly under the radar of, radar of security. I mean, of, you know, um, of the U.S., of our culture. Um, you have people who just won't do it. People who just, you know, there's various reasons that people won't get insured. But 23 million is a whole heck of a lot better than the 50 million that's projected. Uh-oh. All right. I need a little help. Okay, thank you. Okay, so just to give you an overview of PACA, very, very gently, there's actually, it's over a thousand pages, and there's ten huge titles that have to do with uh, the government's effort not only to, you know, control cost and decrease cost, but increase quality and increase access. It's actually kind of interesting because they put this, this fishnet out, and even though some of it is required, there is a whole heck of a lot more that's still up in the air. They're still trying to figure out what's best, and they've got these they've got hundreds of programs out and demonstration projects trying to figure out the best way of taking care of patients over in, in all kinds of different situations. And we're just going to talk about a few of them. So basically, healthcare reform is going to affect you directly as a healthcare provider by various reimbursement issues that are coming up, various reporting issues, and then finally actual practice issues. What decisions you will make when it comes to treating your patients. There's going to be some information out there that you can choose from. So it's really going to affect um, all, all of you. So I can't go over all the different reimbursements that are in there, but as I said, I've picked out some of them. I'm sure you've heard a lot about the Independent Payment Advisory Board. Okay, this is a board that's, uh, it's, it's a group of people. They're, they're handpicked by the president, and they have been given a lot of power. Now, they're just sort of gearing up. Their first report isn't due until 2014. We can't really enact anything that they're recommending until 2015. But this board gives, is, is given a lot of uh, power. Basically, what's going to happen is year one, they will be given projections. And they will be set, you know, these projections are given to them by the government, you know, in different analysis. And those projections will say, okay, Medicare, Medicaid costs are predicted to increase, let's just say, 10%. Well, the advisory board is given a certain target, let's just say 5%. So now this, this projected cost of increase is 5% over. As soon as that number is triggered and it goes over, as soon as they're given numbers that say we are growing higher than we should, this advisory board is given the power to make recommendations to lower those costs, to keep those costs at the projected level. That you know, They say we can only do it 5%, so we have 5% over, so these are the things that we're going to recommend that we can stop. Now it's interesting because they, you have, those recommendations will be enacted unless Congress steps up to the plate and says, okay, not only don't we like those recommendations, but we have a better idea. It will cost either, it'll cost us the savings either equal or lower. 
and we can enact it right away. Well, Congress might be able to do a lot of that stuff, but the right away part's going to be tough. And the other issue to think about about this advisory board is that the, it, it cannot cut benefits. Okay, so think about it. you're on this board, you're not allowed to cut benefits, you're not allowed to cut, you know, who's allowed to be a beneficiary, you're not allowed to increase premiums. So the only thing you're allowed to do is basically decrease reimbursement. So this is what you'll see a lot of people getting upset. You'll see a lot of this stuff in the news about AMA. They don't want this board because they want to be given the freedom of being able to decide how to control these costs. And if you look at the big picture of healthcare reform, and there are all these ideas that are out there to save, do we really need this board? Maybe we do. Maybe we need this little stick. I don't know, but stay tuned. But that's basically um, what the controversy is about. The other thing about reimbursement is not only do you have this advisory board, but they are really shifting from a fee-for-service payment to a fee-for-quality. And one thing that's really tied into all of these efforts that you'll not only hear about today, but in the news, they're all tied to quality. They want uh, practitioners to meet standards that are still being developed. Some of them are already set. Some of them aren't. They want you to meet the standards. They want you to report on the standards. And then they're going to compare your standards to people in your specialty. So there's a real move toward we don't care about quantity anymore. We care about quality. And these basically, overall, you'll hear different programs. And they're usually talking about pay for reporting, pay for performance, pay for value. And these are the different kinds of programs and pilots and demonstrations that you'll hear about. Some of these issues, some of these reporting programs are already going on, like the physician quality reporting system, that's already out there. But these uh, statutes have beefed this up. They've also increased incentives, or they've also um, prolonged the incentive payments. Uh, the other thing is the uh, prescription, um, electronic prescription program. And finally, the uh, electronic health record uh, meaningful use. Now, you can look at this stuff and say, oh my god, I'm not going to get paid for any of this stuff. I have to meet all this stuff. What's in it? Not to say we're in it for money. I know we're in it for patient care. But reality is, who's going to pay the bills? Well, the government understands believe it or not, that it's going to be hard for us to incorporate all of this stuff into our programs. And you have to get paid for it. Somebody's got to pay for it. Well, the government figures that it's cheaper to give incentive payments for you to incorporate this technology and cooperate with reporting and meeting these standards. It's cheaper for them to pay you an incentive than for us to keep going with this increased cost. So if you look around, there's, there are lots of programs that offer incentives, but you have to really look carefully at them. You have to make sure you can meet them. Electronic health records are really important to incorporate, but this is basically what's going on with reimbursement. They're changing from fee to service um, to fee for value payments. Now, there's lots of ways they're trying to do this. And what the government has done is they've set up, as I said, a bunch of demonstration and a bunch of pilots. And you're going to be hearing about this. And I think this is where a lot of the confusion is. Because people hear about fee-for-service. They hear about bundled. They hear about shared savings. Is this what? They're all different things. And people are just looking for the best way to handle uh, health care. So bundled payments is one of these ways. Bundled payments is basically for hospitals, and it's based on what's called an episode of care. Episode of care is defined, but they're trying to fix it. They're trying to, like, you know, try to incorporate, you know, what happens if they, you know, people, you know, don't, you know, fit into this episode of care. But basically, they said an episode of care is three days before hospital admission, hospitalization, and 30 days after hospitalization. 
they, that's, and they will give you, they will give one payment for all that time. So then you have to think, oh my God, I have to anticipate, what can I do? What they're hoping is that people will start paying attention to their patients. They want to make sure that you don't get, have a patient who bounces back. I mean, not that it happens to anybody, but you know, there are times that you d discharge a patient, oh, you're fine, just go home. Next thing you know, in 24 hours, you're back? What the heck happened? And something happened, then you had to readmit them. So this is what they're trying to uh, discourage, and they, they're thinking that if we can streamline the system and that people really start focusing on, we have to make sure this patient is ready for discharge, that we're going to discharge this patient to an appropriate area, and they're going to have appropriate follow-up. So this is sort of like the carrot and the stick. You know, they're saying, you know, you're going to get one, one set of money, and if you save, great. If you go over it, that's bad. So this is just another way that they're looking to try to see if they can decrease the cost. Another way is shared savings. Um, bundled payments are mostly for hospitals and physicians and rehab facilities, you know, in that genre. And shared savings is a little bit more of um, practices, like uh, physician practices. Basically, they're saying that if they give you if you all work together and coordinate your care and meet all these objectives, that you can bill for Medicare, and they will pay you what you're billing. Now, hopefully, if you're doing a really good job, you won't be billing as much because there's not so many errors, there's not so many readmissions. However, what they'll do is they'll project how much it average costs. You know, how much does it usually cost for this kind of a patient, given the whole? And if there's a savings there, you get to share in it you and anybody else that was involved in this coordinated care. So that's kind of interesting. That's a really, really good incentive because if you can stop your patients from being readmitted, having adverse effects from medication or treatments, um, early diagnosis, preventive care, you, there's a potential for a lot of money to be made. Um, and basically shared savings as everything else. Um, uh, you know, they want accountability. They want you to have coordinated care. They want you to meet the standards. And that's basically the, the theme throughout all of these different pro programs. OK, so we talked about how it affects um, reimbursement. A little bit about data reporting. As I said, we've already, you know, some of our physicians um, already have to make, meet some of these reporting efforts. The nice thing about it is some of these incentives have increased. Some of them have been prolonged. And you need to pay attention uh, about, you know, the, uh, Pay attention about being very compulsive about trying to get this information in. Some of these data reportings are the Medicare's physician quality reporting. You know, they're offering bonus payments, uh, maintenance of certification program. This is basically for physicians, but I'm adding this in here because obviously we're team players. So what happens to our physician happens to us sort of down the line. Um, so, you know, these things also offer uh, incentive payments. Medicare is also um, going to put a little fire under uh, everybody, and they're going to launch a website that is accessible not only to practitioners but also to our patients to actually compare apples to apples practitioners. You know, like this person has this has met this many quality standards. This person is less expensive or more expensive. Um, so that's kind of an interesting thing that's going on, and also this physician feedback program. Uh, Medicare uh, is going to, I, upon request, and this hasn't happened yet, this is all some other stuff in the works, um, can also send your practice or your practitioner a report 
uh, you know, talking about your quality compared to people uh, in your field. So that'll be kind of interesting. So you see there's a lot of information and data that they're, they're not only trying to collect, but they're trying to use effectively to increase quality uh, and decrease cost. Okay, one of the things, um, the other thing that um, I hope all of you uh, are aware of is meaningful use. Meaningful use is linked directly with electronic health records and the incorporation of health information technology. Uh, meaningful use basically means that you have an eligible provider using um, appropriate um, and approved healthcare systems in order to meet these goals and they also report them. That's meaningful use generally. This is basically a multi-year, multi-stage incentive program, and the main thrust of this is to get information technology into every practice, and the way we practice medicine, both um, in our offices as well as in the hospitals. The incentive payments here are significant. If you choose to do the Medicare route, over the next five years, you have the potential of making $44,000 as an eligible provider. Uh, Medicaid is a little bit more. Uh, it has $64,000 in incentive payments that can be made and distributed over for Medicaid six years, years. Each of these programs are similar, but there's also some significant differences. For instance, you can't collect from both programs. You have to choose one. You can only change once. Both of them have different requirements as to, you know, attestation. You know, you're going to go into, you know, the Medicare website and say, yes, we made it, or, you know, I'm thinking about it. That's Medicaid. Yes, I made it is Medicare. But to tell you how well it's being incorporated, the um, uh, CMS has just paid out $75 million to eligible providers for Medicare. So that's a lot of money, and these payments will keep going on. Now, you might say, oh, my God, $75 million, that's a lot of money. But as you see, the, the government's trying to balance giving you incentive payments so you can do this stuff and take better care because they believe, as well as you know, we should also believe, that taking really great care of our patients is a cost-benefit. Uh, so that's the payment, and then finally, um, here comes the stick. If you're not a meaningful user by 2000, um, I think it's 16, you will actually get a penalty in Medicare payments. Uh, you'll have a lower uh, rate of repayment. So this is something that people really need to think about. You need to go over um, these rules and you know, talk to your providers and say, is this something that we're doing? Um, and hopefully it'll work because everyone knows that the, the other point about uh, electronic health records is that conceivably it's supposed to help us take care of our patients. You know, so if a patient comes into me as into the practice and then we send them to the ER and then we send them to a specialty hospital, all the information will be the same. That's the idea. That's in utopia. But that's what we're trying to move toward. Okay, this is just to a chart um, about the meaningful use payments and the differences between the Medicare program and the Medicaid program. Like I said, Medicaid, you can make more, but you have to have more patients. You have to, um, there's, a, there's little differences between the two. But anyway, so Medicaid pay, patients, you have an opportunity to make 63,000, even though most people do pay, uh, so far take um, Medicare patients. Okay, and then just some general other requ reporting requirements that are in the healthcare reform is uh, when doctors, Officially, physicians are not allowed to refer patients to facilities or, or laboratories where they have a financial interest, such as they, they're not allowed, to, if I send you to a lab, the lab's not allowed to send me money. Um, if, uh, if I own the lab and I'm sending you to the lab, you're not really allowed to do that. However, 
this law has a multitude of exceptions. And one exception is called the in-office ancillary exception. So if you're in the practice and you wanted to send someone to, uh, uh, to get a CAT scan, which is in your you know, building, um, you were allowed to do that. Don't ask, it's crazy, but anyway, that's basically what you were allowed to do. However, the interesting thing about healthcare reform is now they're saying, if that's the case, when you refer your patients right now for radiology studies, such as MRI, CT, or PET scans, you have to tell them in writing that you have a financial incentive uh, in that place. Also, you have to put in writing a number of other places your patient can go to to get the same testing services within a certain geographical era, uh, area. And the states are sort of trying to figure out like how big of an area, is it 10 mile radius, is it 20 mile, 50? You know, if you're in a rural area, you know, there's all these things that are up in the air. But basically, that's what they're saying is that you have to put it in writing and tell the patients, I have a financial interest, but you should go, you know, I, I'm, I'm telling you to go here. However, these are other choices that you can do. The reason why it's important for us is because a lot of things are just starting out here and then they grow. So if they're asking for MRI disclosures and other venues that people can get MRIs, they're probably going to make it grow and enlist other laboratory services. So that's something that we need to be aware of. What they're trying to do is make sure that people, there's, there's enough transparency, that people are aware that if a physician is sending you someplace that, and if he's making a benefit from it, people should, it's not a, you shouldn't hide that. And patients want to know. And the government, this is, you know, this is the other part about the government wanting not only increased information to them, they want increased information given to their patients. Uh, the other one is, oh, mandatory obligation to report overpayments. I don't know if any of you have already been hit with this for Medicare and uh, Medicaid. If you receive money from Medicare and Medicaid and you think it's an overpayment, you know, sometimes people were like, oh, I have to discuss this with the CMS. I have to talk, talk to my provider. That is no more. The government is severely cracking down on what they are terming fraud and abuse, and that if you receive an overpayment, it doesn't matter if you really deserve it, that you can argue that that's actually yours or is a misbilling. You have to repay it, because if you don't repay it immediately, then you can fight it, and then the government will pay you back, supposedly. Uh, you can fight it, but um, there are significant penalties that if you hold on to that money and you know that that was an overpayment, you can get in a lot of trouble. And this is something that's concerning for people who are getting their charts looked at by all these Macs and Racks and Zips, you know, these outside contractors um, who are paid by the government to look at these Medicare records and they're allowed to go back three to five years and look at your records and they're allowed to pull a lot of records and you have to give it to them and they go over it with a fine tooth comb looking to see if they made an overpayment and if you made an overpayment um, there's, there's, that's a big problem so it's really important to stay on top of things and be aware that if you think you've gotten more money than you're supposed to Give it back and then start fighting. Or what you should do is call, you know, a, an attorney who's, you know, who's really uh, familiar with that so to, for them to help you. Um, and then finally, uh, orders who, uh, providers who order any kind of Medicare services, um, in order to receive these incentives, you have to be registered with the government. Um, you can do it manually, but what they really want you to do is go on to the electronic system. In PICOs, it's called. I'm sure you've already already done that. Um, and that's the only way that they will allow you um, to receive these incentive payments. The reason why they want you to um, register on PICOs is because they are 
looking at um, your qualifications, your billing practices. They want to make sure that you are actually a real provider because this is another um, uh, issue that they're trying to make sure that people who are practicing medicine are doing the right thing, that they're, you know, that their billing is okay, that they're registered appropriately, and so they also want you um, appropriately enrolled. So we talked about reimbursement issues that um, healthcare reform is uh, going to have an impact on you, as well as reporting issues. And then finally, I'm going to talk about practice of medicine. You know, upfront, what's what's it going to do for me when I go to make healthcare decisions for my patient? Obviously, it's up to you. You know, what you do with your patient um, is in in your own medical judgment. However, this uh, CMS uh, is trying to get really involved in evidence-based medicine and trying to unify it and trying to get information and good research out there so we can make good decisions. One of the ways they're doing it um, is that they've come up with this, uh, within the CMS, there's uh, an innovation center. And this innovation center, we'll talk about it in a second, um, is basically going to look at the different ways of delivering patient care as well as payment for them. And then finally, the Patient Centers Outcome Research Institute. This is really interesting. This is a, a, a nonprofit organization. It's technically not tied to the government. It's a separate body, and it's a research body. And what it does is that it looks at research priorities. It decides what we should actually look at. It's able to conduct the research and come up with the outcomes, and then they publish it. They don't get anything for it. We don't get anything for it. It's just information for us to decide when we go to treat our patients, and patients also have access to it. Again, this stuff isn't up and running, but this is stuff that you'll hear that is in the Reform uh, Act, and we're just trying to figure out how we're going to make it work and all the different uh, nuances uh, when you come to trying to do uh, nationalized uh, health care. Oh, the other interesting thing about uh, the research outcomes here is that they're not guidelines, they're not recommendations, and they're not mandatory to be followed. So this is just informational purposes only, unlike a lot of these other things um, that are in the bill. Okay, so the Center uh, for Medicare and Medicaid, CMS, uh, comes up with this innovation center, which is in the healthcare reform bill, to say that you have to establish this. And basically what they're able to do is that they test, evaluate, and they are allowed to adopt and expand uh, patient uh, care models that they have looked at and decide that this is a good idea. Um, anything that requires, uh, anything that has to do with payment, anything that has to do with treatment. So they're basically looking at different ways of taking care of patients to see if we can get uh, increased quality and decreased cost. Um, so that's one thing. You'll hear about the Innovation Center. You'll hear about the Research Center. Some other things that you'll hear about is that there's lots of different new patient care models. There's lots of demonstration projects. There's lots of pilot projects. A lot of them aren't even started. They're sort of gearing up for next year, for, uh, 2014 and 2015. So you'll hear a lot of um, information about these new patient care models. Or those of you who have been around for a while, they're actually not so new. They're sort of a rehash of some of the stuff we've done before. Um, but the difference here is that this is a nationwide effort. Things like medical homes, uh, one, of, uh, one demonstration project, is called Independence at Home and also Accountable Care Organizations. Um, I put this slide up because as I go through you know, the Healthcare Reform Act, I, I know I'm a little biased, but I go through and I search on physician assistants because I want to see how many times we're named. 
Um, and this is, you know, one of the ones that they said, yeah, absolutely. Physician assistants, you know, are allowed to do this or allowed to participate. And you may think that's kind of strange, but there's a lot of times the PAs aren't mentioned. Or, you know, like with the uh, amended act that came up, a lot of times we were added. Oh, they forgot about us, so they added us. Oh, we're going to change it from clinical specialists to uh, clinical specialists and physician assistants. And that sort of irks me because I don't like having to be an afterthought. I like PAs to be able to say, oh, yeah, we've got the physicians, nurse practitioners, PAs. I, it should all be one sentence. Maybe not in that order, but all in one sentence. Okay, so medical homes, what are they? Basically, these are ways that we're, they're trying to have medicine practice in a way you always wanted to practice medicine. Focusing on the patient, trying to get coordinated care, doing the best job, basing it on evidence-based medicine, and actually having really good outcomes. That's, it's kind of funny, but they're actually trying to make that work because it doesn't work right now. You guys know that you call for labs, you can't find the labs. You know, your patient actually went to another dermatologist or they had surgery and you didn't know about it. We're trying not to do it. We're trying to get it more, you know, together and more coordinated. They want to make sure that health IT is used. You know, they want electronics uh, in the office, in the care, because that's the, actually, if it works, if we can make it work, it will definitely decrease costs and help us take care of our patients better. Uh, also, effective use of financial incentives. They want us to be able to meet those quality objectives. I really shouldn't say us. I don't practice anymore. Um, but uh, so anyway, so you have these uh, elements that they want to try to increase the coordinated care. As I said before, there's lots of standards to meet, you know, and on medical homes, these standards were some of the ones. They want to be able to have patient self-management, case management, uh, patient tracking. So you know you can't do this manually. You've got to have a computer to help you do this. I mentioned Independence at Home as one of the demonstration projects for uh, patient-centered care because the AAPA has also mentioned this. Um, this basically is bringing, trying to coordinate primary care services to Medicare patients who have at least two comorbidities that are very costly. So we're trying to get really sick patients, very time-consuming and resource-consuming patients, and this is the model they're trying to figure out what is going to work. They use primary care teams, of which we're on, of which we can lead. You know, we, you don't actually need a physician leader in these um, care teams. We can have uh, physician assistants not only be part of the team, but actually a leader of the team. And hopefully that, you know, with the coordinated care, they'll, you know, have to meet the objectives. They have to, you know, uh, use the computer to rec record and report this stuff. But hopefully this will also um, decrease costs and increase care. Yes. Okay, and another big thing that's in the news is accountable care organizations, or ACOs. And basically, this is another type of shared savings program. This is interesting because it's now permitting, it used to be against the law, that hospitals and rehab facilities and physician practices and individual physicians were not allowed to refer patients to one another. Okay, this law is actually opening that up and loosening those binds to say, you know what, actually that's probably a good idea. You do need to coordinate care. And what they want to do is make one body who will take on the responsibility of saying, oh yeah, if we have these patients that are ours, we will take the responsibility of making sure that they get good care and that we'll report in and meet the standards. Um, 
this is a little bit more structured than any of the other demonstration projects. It has to be a legal entity. You have to have like the hospitals and the practices and the practitioners get together and say, okay, we are now forming a sort of like a corporation and saying this is, you know, this is us and this is how we're going to take care of patients. There's lots of things you have to meet. You have to have like over, you know, 5,000 Medicare patients and things like that. But basically, this is what accountable care organizations are. It's not just a group of physicians and practitioners. It's actually system-wide efforts to coordinate care. And if they can coordinate care and they bill out what they're billing and it's compared and they said, you know what, actually, you billed us 100 bucks and we're, we were anticipating 200 bucks, so you get to share the $100. So this is a big incentive. This is supposed to be coming up uh, next year, so you're going to see more and more information about these healthcare uh, organizations. So basically, healthcare reform is trying to give patients lots of benefits. They want to improve access, and particularly based on improving care. We're going to talk a little bit about insurance exchanges because obviously the healthcare reform bill wants to make sure everyone's insured. Um, currently, right now, it's now extended uh, healthcare for people dependents up to the age of 26, which is great because when your kid graduates college, you know it's kind of nerve-wracking to have them walk around without insurance. Because even though they think nothing's ever going to happen to them, you know, they have trauma and, you know, obviously people, especially, you know, and young people get sick. There's now a requirement for 100% coverage of preventive care and screenings. There's no lifetime dollar limits. You know, you used to, they used to have a cap on that. You're not allowed to do that. You're not allowed to deny somebody based on pre-existing uh, pre conditions. And finally, they're closing, they're gradually closing what's called the donut hole. I'm sure you guys all know that, you know, Medicare beneficiaries, if they have, um, prescription care coverage uh, under Medicare, uh, they can pay prescriptions up to, I think it's like a little over $2,000. Then from $2,000 per year up to $6,000, there's no benefit. So it's out of pocket. And then for some reason, $6,000 and the coverage kicks on again. Well, now they're trying to close that. It's called, I don't know why they call it a donut hole. But anyway, they're trying to close that donut hole. And that actually started this year um, by rebating, uh, reimbursing people $250 for once they hit the donut hole, the government will give them a rebate of $250 for the year. I don't know. But eventually, as the years go on, between 2014 and 15, that donut hole is going to close. And again, improving quality. You know that if we can get better quality, better coordination of care, we're going to have better patient outcomes. And I think that that's what it's all about. Some of the preventive screening services that are now required by Medicare and uh, new insurance plans is that you, you can't have a copay with this stuff. You have to be able to get this stuff for free. Um, mammograms, counseling, routine vaccinations, and these are divided into adult classifications, women, and children. Uh, and now we're going into a little bit more of a hot topic, the mandatory health insurance coverage. Um, in, the, in the reform bill, it says that employers, large employers, uh, which are, you know, it's sort of, a little bit different, you know, it sort of depends, but basically a large employer is defined as an employer who has more than 50 or more full-time uh, employees. They are required to offer these insurances. So, you know, these can still be considered small employees. If you have 100 or 51 employees, you have to have insurance coverage. So this is where health insurance exchanges come in. This is federally mandated that the states have to have some place where people and small businesses can access a marketplace for insurance. In this marketplace, uh, these insurance coverages that are offered 
um, are screened by the government. They have to meet certain minimum benefits. They have to have certain cost levels. You have to have at least like four plans. It's from like a gold to a platinum choices for people to choose from, not only individuals, but also um, for small businesses. And they have to meet all these minimum standards. You can always have more, right? Sometimes people are afraid of healthcare reform because they think that, you know, oh, you can only have this one blanket coverage. It isn't. This is minimum coverage. You can always buy more. You can always buy different insurance. And the biggest topic, the hot topic uh, that's going around is the mandatory insurance uh, not only for the employer, but especially for the employee. I'm, I'm sorry, for the individual. So that you don't actually have to be an employee. Every individual is required by 2014 to have some type of health insurance. And of course, that raises the hair on a lot of people's necks in, in America um, because we don't like government in our business. We don't want that. This is the general consensus. Um, it's not my personal opinion. Um, but basically, people don't like government telling them what to do. However, as you know, being part of a country, you have to have certain government enforcements and certain government rules and regulations. And they've said that every individual has to have insurance. And there's a penalty for it. If you don't have insurance, you're going to have to pay a penalty of almost $700 up to over $2,000 for a family or 2.5% of your family income, whichever is greater. Okay, so that's a lot of money. I mean, especially if you don't have money, uh, that's a lot of money. So that's a significant penalty. That doesn't happen all at once. You know, they're going to ratchet it up. I think it starts at like $200 and then it ratchets up uh, until 2000, uh, you know, for over a period of time, a few years. There are exceptions. Okay, people who, um, if they f go onto the insurance exchange and they get the cheapest policy, and that cheapest policy is more than 8% of their family income, they are exempted from the penalty. Okay? Also for incomes that, if you don't make enough money to even file a federal income tax, you will, you will be exempted from the penalty. Illegal immigrants, prisoners, and people with religious views that they absolutely don't want, can't uh, buy uh, individual insurance because of their religious uh, ideals. And I know that you guys have heard a lot about, is it constitutional? How can the government possibly come in and tell an individual in the United States that you must buy a private buy a product from a private vendor, or even a, uh, even a government vendor. How can they possibly tell you to do that? Well, there's a couple ar arguments. Most likely, the government's going to win because uh, they, make you pay, uh, they make you buy health insurance. That's one of the arguments, not health insurance. They make you buy car insurance. When you buy a car, in order to drive that car, you have to have health insurance. Well, sure, you know, so you're going to penalize me for being alive, so now that I'm alive, I have to have insurance. Well, the government counters that eventually, at some point, everybody is going to need health care. It doesn't matter from the day you're born to the day you die, you are going to need health care. And if you buy health care, I mean, if you have to get the health care and you don't have insurance, we're all paying for it. And the government says that's not fair because what an individual does when it affects the group, we're allowed to regulate the group. So that's one of the arguments, and it's still going on. There's like 26 um, cases already uh, in the works um, about the individual uh, mandate. Um, the other argument is, is that, you know, the government isn't allowed to regulate, you know, tell me what I have to do because I'm not doing anything. 
So it's an inactivity thing. Um, you know, the government is allowed to regulate commerce. You know, they're allowed, especially when it goes across state lines, they're allowed to make up rules and regulations about trucking and things. Even though states have their laws, if it affects more than one state, the federal government is allowed to get involved and make rules. Well, they feel the same thing is with um, health care insurance. Um, they think that, you know, one of the arguments is, is that I'm not doing anything. You can't make me, as a government, do something. So you're trying to regulate inactivity. And the government says, no, that's not true. We're actually regulating activity. You know, it's all the nuances of the legalese. But it's, you know, it's kind of interesting to see how it's playing out. But that's one of the individual uh, arguments for why, um, whether or not we should have uh, mandatory health care. Um, what's the other one? Oh, people are saying due process. You know, our Fifth Amendment is being uh, affected because our salary, the money that you make, is property. And the government is actually saying, I'm, I'm taking your salary. We have to have a portion of your salary so you can buy this. So some people are arguing it's an illegal taking, but it's probably not going to work either because the government is allowed to regulate. They're allowed to tax, and this is what it's, the arguments are about right now. And then finally, the states say, uh, you can't regulate, you can't tell me that I have to tell my constituents that they have to buy insurance. You're not allowed to do that because Congress is only allowed to do the things that are itemized in the Constitution. They, they, and there's nothing, and this is the argument, this, the, there's nothing in the Constitution that says the government is allowed to make individuals buy health care. See how you sort of narrow that whole focus down? But that's the argument. And it's, it's, it's interesting because it's actually bubbling up. And you know, we're going to see some Supreme Court cases um, regarding whether or not uh, the individual mandate or even health care reform as a whole uh, is constitutional or not. I did it again. Sorry, pushed the wrong one. We're, we are wrapping up. This is coming to an end. Okay, so there's so many things going on. You know, some people, you know, don't know what to do. Um, you should really try uh, to stay involved with your, not only your society uh, PA program, I mean, your PA society uh, specialty uh, associations, but also become a member of your state association. Because only in, in, in numbers is there more power. So if you could join your state association, that would be great. I'm still um, actively involved in our uh, physician assistant uh, group uh, in Pennsylvania. Um, that's important, and also especially the national, the AAPA. If you're not a member of the AAPA or your state association, you should really think about can you really swing that? Can your practice swing reimbursement? Um, because they are out there fighting for us to make sure that we're included. Because I can't tell you how many times we're not included. You know, people, you know, forget, they don't know who we are. And along those lines, if you guys could grab a partner, you know, grab another PA, even from another specialty, and go meet and greet your representatives. You know, there's bound to be somebody who's working here in Washington, but is actually having, has a home office where you live. You need to go out and meet them. All you have to do is go, hi, how are you? I'm a physician assistant, I work over here, and I'm a PA. If that's too simplistic, the AAPA and also usually your state association has talking points. They have a, a information that you can give them. You can walk in to your representatives. You have to call and make an appointment. You walk in and say, okay, and you read it. And they'll say, you know, I want to tell you that we are providers. Uh, we do this. We deserve, there's this many of us. And we just want you to know that we are out here and we're watching you. Okay. And then finally, you know, the AAPA um, and also the state associations, 
um, put out grassroots efforts, it's pretty easy. They give you a letter. They already send you the letter. All you gotta do is push the button. Send the letter. They already know, you know, you tell them who, you know, what your zip code is and they'll address it appropriately. All you have to do is put dear Senator so-and-so. And usually what I like to do, because I always like to add stuff, you know, I, I might add you know, who I am and what I'm doing and blah, 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 uh, just to sort of personalize it. But you don't have to. You can just say, that's it. Yep, send it. And they want your name and your address and your email and stuff. And then that's it. You can't get easier than that. But all of that stuff counts because then those aides, they count up how many responses they got. Oh, yeah, here's the PAs because we really have to do a little bit more hustle uh, on getting noticed in this big picture here. Okay, that's it. I really appreciate your time and attention, um, and thank you very much.